Welcome to this week's episode of Stand Out, growing in the organizing and productivity profession brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Every episode, we will learn from NAPO members and subject matter experts as they share their successes, challenges, best practices, proven strategies, industry developments, and more. And now, here's your host, Claire Kumar, NAPO member since 2010. Welcome to another episode of NAPO's podcast, Stand Out. I'm Productivity Catalyst and a longtime member of NAPO, Claire Kumar, and thrilled to be your host today. What does the little voice inside your head tell you? Does it say, hey girl, you ain't good enough to be here? Does it say your ideas are no good? Does it say you have no right to be at this table? What are you doing here? That could be what your voice is saying. It could be the sound of what Denise Jacobs calls your inner critic, but it doesn't have to be. And so that's why I'm really excited to have Denise here today. What if your inner critic, you could give her a shake, smarten her up and turn her from a foe into a fan, from somebody who's challenging you to being an advocate. That's what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Denise R. Jacobs. Denise, let me tell you about Denise, who's here. You can see, if you're watching the video, you can see she's beaming. She's a majestic queen, Amazonian goddess woman. Denise is a speaker, author, creativity evangelist who speaks at conferences and consults with companies all over the globe. To give you an idea of the robustness of her content, last year, Denise was the go-to replacement for none other than Brene Brown at a really big major event. We are lucky to have her. As the founder and CEO of The Creative Dose, and we'll learn about what that means, Denise shares techniques to unlock creativity, help people become engaged contributors, synergistic collaborators, and authentic leaders. Denise is the author of, I can show you a copy of it here, a book called Banish Your Inner Critic. This is the premier handbook on silencing fears to unleash creativity. We'll get to why creativity is important in this discussion as well. She is also, I love this, the head instigator. Who doesn't want to be the head instigator? That's a girl after my own heart. Of the creativity revolution and the founder of Rock the Web. Rock is R A W K. This is a movement to amplify the presence of women and people of color as leaders in the tech industry. Denise lives in Miami with her polydactyl cat, of which I now have two, thanks in large part to Denise and her pet peacock. I promise you are in for a treat. Welcome to you, Denise. Thank you. And I think, honestly, I think I'm the peacock and not not the other way around. She comes when she wants and she is like blesses us with her presence and then she moves on. Well, thank you for blessing us with your presence in this moment. I've been looking forward to this conversation as soon as I know we can get together. Yay. And yeah, and I want to dive in with a question around. So you were, uh, you've written a book about technology and you're a speaker and leader in that space. What prompted you to write a book about banishing your inner critic? So it's actually funny because it was in writing the first book which is called the CSS Detective Guide that prompted me, that got me into creativity and that led eventually to banishing your inner critic. And CSS just by the way is called cascading style sheets. It's a code that goes with HTML pages that makes them look pretty basically. 
so yeah, so when I was writing the book, I was basically confronted with my inner critic like every day. And it got to the point where I, about four months into it, I did some research and found out just different ways that you could silence that voice of self-doubt because I was grappling with it really strongly. And then at the end of the book, when I, the book was done, I had this like awesome experience. Tell me about this grappling with it. What did that look like? So what was coming up for you? Okay. So the first thing is, is that the first two days that I was supposed to be writing the book, I literally cried all day, four hours on the couch, sobbing for two days where honestly, if you think about it, like I was going to be doing research. I wasn't even going to be doing, (laughs) I wasn't going to be doing anything like outside of the realm of what I've ever done. But you were feeling what, like what was coming up for you that you felt so down that you were crying? Well, first of all, I kept thinking I shouldn't be writing this book. This is somebody else's book, somebody who's more knowledgeable. People are going to find out that I don't know what I'm talking about. People are going to find I'm a fraud. I'm not a good enough designer. I'm not a true expert on this. I mean, like so many things. I'm like, am I a good enough writer? Are people going to buy it? And then in light of all of the kind of Black Lives Matter, anti-racism stuff, I had a whole lot of things where I'm like, am I going to be taken seriously? as a black woman writing about tech, which is real. And so there was just a whole lot of stuff going on in my head and I had to deal with it. Most of it had to do with creativity and being a writer though, and being an expert in this space. And the irony is, it's like, am I an expert enough? And it's like, oh, I don't know, Denise, you've only been teaching HTML and CSS at a college level for like five years at this point, like, you know, you, you already had the proof and still you were doubting yourself. And I was doubting myself, but, and I was really, it was really the judgment. I think that I was really afraid of, of other people questioning my, the validity of my expertise. But when I was done with the book, I finally was like, wait a minute, I am creative. Wait a minute. I can write. Wait a minute. I can design. Hold on. And then I realized that I actually didn't really want to teach people about CSS and web design. What I really wanted to teach people about was creativity and how to unblock creativity and how to unleash creativity. And when I started doing research on that, every single thing that I researched led back to the inner critic, every single thing. Basically, they're like, you know, if you're feeling imposter syndrome, you're not going to be creative. If you're procrastinating and you're feeling like a perfectionist, you're not going to be able to create. If you're doubting your ability to come up with ideas, you're not going to be able to create. And I was like, look at that. So that's when I started to really wrap in as kind of my process for getting to a place where you could create. I really wrapped in this silencing or banishing your inner critic. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Every time I talked about it, people responded like so much like you're in my head. It's like you're standing behind me when I was doing my MFA, you know, like all this stuff. And then, so then I took it and I made it its own talk. I made it its own keynote. So I just want to bridge this for our listeners who are a mixture of organizers and productivity experts. And most of us will have come across clients who definitely deal with perfectionism and procrastination as a sabotage. So on that level, this insight is going to be invaluable in terms of helping clients. 
but I'm also really, really interested in, okay, as individual business owners and service providers, how important is creativity for us so that we understand the importance of this whole conversation? As business owners, creativity is one of the things that you have to do all of the time. You have to do creative problem solving because we're constantly, as entrepreneurs, as business owners, we are constantly problem solving. Something happens, we have to figure out how to make it work. You know, something happens where it doesn't work, we have to figure out how to make it work. Whether it's marketing, whether it's customer service dealing with a client, whether it's strategy and strategizing, whether it's accounting, much to our dismay. <laughs> Anything that we do, our branding, our messaging, everything. 100%. Like we have to have a unique selling proposition. We have to figure out what's different about us. Well, that takes a whole pile of creative thinking right there to even identify what makes us unique. And honestly, as productivity specialists and organizers, you're literally always being creative, right? Like you're walking into a space, let's say if you're actually doing like physical organizing, you're literally walking into a space, surveying it, and then saying, okay, this is how I'm going to basically fix this problem of it being disorganized and I'm going to actually bring organization to this chaos. And then layer in the client interaction and understanding their mindset and approach and resistance or where they are in their journey, what their vision is. And you've got constraints and constraints I know are an incredible power tool for creativity, but you have to respect them and come up with solutions. But the thing that's interesting is that that is the kind of creativity that you probably excel in. So it doesn't even feel like anything because it's something that's so second nature to you and so easy that you're like, it's not effort. And therefore, sometimes because when it's not effort, we don't value it. So is there something this just sort of came to me? Is there something we can take from the fact that we're good in an area? Can we borrow from that and then say, hey, I wasn't always necessarily good in that, or there was a journey there and I'm on another journey. Is that something of value? Honestly, I feel like when somebody's really good at something, that is like their zone of genius. When somebody is good at something almost effortlessly, like without there being a lot of thought, without there being a lot of deliberation, certainly you've done it so many times that you've built mastery. It's not like you just fell out of bed and all of a sudden you were able to like play a concerto on a violin flawlessly. But if you have kind of the raw talent or the kind of tendency towards that, a musical ability or whatever, then over time with practice, you're going to get better. Same thing with the kind of creativity that you're probably applying to the work that you're doing. One of the things I actually, and as organizers and productivity specialists, I hope, I'm sure you guys will all appreciate this, but I love sorting things. <laughs> oh, I don't know of what you speak. <laughs> I love sorting things and categorizing things and organizing things. I love putting stuff in like little things so I can. Okay. Just, I need to just, because we had a, a couple of minutes to talk before this kicked off and Denise showed me the new zone and just back to your, over your right shoulder bag for the people that are not watching the video, let me explain a little bit. So Denise, first of all, is wearing these magnificent earrings, which she made, which matched the ring, which she made. So she's a, so that creative genius thing is happening. So back in the corner, 
is a drawer unit with multiple drawers for the jewelry creation and a cabinet. And it's beautiful. It fits beautifully. There's incredible task lighting, ambient lighting, natural lighting. The whole thing is there. It's really an incredible setup. So this girl gets getting organized to set up for success. I thought you would all appreciate that. If you get a chance to watch the video on YouTube, by all means, check it out because it's a fine example of a very productive and well-designed workspace. That's a total sidebar. We're coming back to the inner critic piece. So the fact that we can draw on things that we're good at, but where we really need to tame our inner critic is especially when it's popping its head up when we're not as sure of our performance or when something's new. Imagine you're driving a car for the first time and you feel like that every day because your inner critic is there. Like, are you going to do something wrong? There's a whole level of anxiety that that will have an effect on our body too, that we can tame. But before we get into what we can do about the inner critic, can you enlighten us a little bit on where this beast came from and what value it had? Like there's a reason that we have inner critics and why is that? So the inner critic basically develops when you're a child. It is a protective mechanism created by your psyche to help prevent future hurt that you would experience. So for example, you're five years old and maybe you're carrying a plate of food or something like that and you trip over the carpet and you drop it and then one of your parents goes, oh my God, you're so clumsy. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, that must be true because it came from on high. And then after that, your inner critic is just like, okay, be careful, pay attention, completely avoid carrying platters of food because that's just not going to work because you're clumsy and la la la. And so this reinforcement of your clumsy, where you may not have been, there was a thing in the carpet, you, you, you tripped, right? Like maybe there wasn't. And this kind of thing, if you can take an instance like that, and then multiply it by however many instances of things like that that you hear over the course of your childhood, it's no surprise that then we end up trying to be perfect or modifying our behavior so that we aren't judged by people. Yeah, I had a client once who was a trauma therapist and I was there and the situation was a hoarder level in the basement and there was cat evidence of cats everywhere evidence. And so it was interesting as we got into a discussion and she said, I can't tidy up because of the way my mom was with me when I was a child. She connected the dots. So she understood what was going on, but that that childhood experience is incredibly formative. And the other thing that you triggered in, in what you said is that these negative messages, something called negativity bias, right? Where we give greater priority to those negative messages, even though there might've been 50-50 messages coming. We have a tendency to weight those negative messages higher. So that contributes to the inner critic then and the volume and the fact that it's playing more negative messages. Yeah, and it also then goes into a part of your brain called implicit memory, where that information is information that like you can access immediately without even thinking about it. And then that information drives your subconscious behavior. So we don't even know we're triggered and implicit memory is that, it's, it's, that we're not consciously making a decision about what we are thinking that it's guiding us. It's like a negative autopilot. It's like a negative autopilot. Yeah. Ooh, and I don't want one of those. Thank you very much. So thank you, but you know, we all have one. So 
Yeah. So there was a good purpose for it in terms of keeping us safe, but it's like, you know what? I don't need you for all of that. What do I do now? What, what are some things we can do to catch when that's happening and turn it around, turn it down? What can we do? Well, it's actually, there's kind of some good, like effective exercises, first of all, to help you just get in touch with your inner critic. So in the book, actually, I have like what I call inner critic mad libs, where you've got like these sentences and you fill in the blank. So it's like, I'm not blank because I blank, or I can't blank because I blank, or if I blank, then other people will blank. Yeah. So that's an effective way to uncover some of what you're telling yourself without knowing you're telling it to yourself, right? Exactly. And that can be a really effective way to get in touch with your inner critical. It's actually called your inner critical voice. And then once you are in touch with it and you start saying, oh, the other thing that I actually really like to recommend to people is once they start to hear those inner critical thoughts to try to see if they can figure out where they came from. Like who was the first person who told you that? Or what was the instance in which you got that piece of information, which may or may not have been true. Probably it wasn't necessarily true. So if you dance, I call it dancing in discomfort. So you've got this moment and you're like, I don't like what that's saying. It's not to to just go change the message, just to really dig into understanding the genesis of that thought. And then do you look at that more critically and say, is that valid? Yes. And the other way that I like to encourage people to do that is to not only look and like, okay, where did that come from? But then to actually try to zoom out a little bit and actually see where the person who may have said that message, where they were at, at the time. Therein lies the power of forgiveness and compassion and understanding where some of the angst that, you know, intergenerational stuff flows down. Does that help you dissociate from some of the emotion that you don't have to carry this load? I feel like it does because it's one of those things where if you're like, wow, like my grandmother said that, but she had been going through a really awful divorce or my grandfather had just died or I didn't even realize that she had fibromyalgia and she was in constant pain. Yeah. It's like, what were they incubating in that helped form those thoughts? Then you can say, you know, they were doing, I always think compassion comes from a perspective of someone's believing someone's doing the best they can. Exactly. Yeah. Then if you, if you can hold on to that compassionate view, you can let go of anger for it. And then you can also question the validity of it. Did they say it because they actually believe that? Or was that just them lashing out? Oh, yeah. Like that was that just acting out and like saying whatever. Yeah, it is possible to say something you don't mean when you're not, you know, not well rested, well fed, under stress. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, super cool. So you call these in your book. And I wanted to come back to this because it's the name of your company as well. The creative dose. There's numerous exercises in the book for a number of different ways people find their inner voice coming up and different ways to deal with it. I was taking notes on the ones that I thought were really relevant to me and deficiency anxiety, number five, like the, I'm not good enough here. And the, this is one that'll come up for our clients a lot overwhelm due to a lack of capacity, 
right? That feeling of overwhelm. A lot of clients I know in my practice would be calling me because they were triggered by that sense of overwhelm and I just need to do something now. So there's, I think there were seven, maybe more. There was, and it was the end of chapter two, because if uh, what I encourage people to do, if they're really, if this is speaking to you and you really like, I want to get a handle on these voices in my head, I think it was the end of chapter two. You can read the book front to back, or you can read chapter one and two. And at the end of chapter two, you can sort of do some self-assessment of where you're finding challenges and then skip forward to tackle particular issues, which I love because sometimes we want to be really productive in a short time and we want to just skip right to the, this is the meat for me. Exactly. Yeah. And I totally, you know, I set it up that way because I'm just like, it's a lot of content and it's also a lot of processing. It's a lot of like, you know, if you actually do the exercises and stuff, it's a good amount of inner work. And sometimes you don't need to eat the elephant all at once. You just take it bite by bite. If you were to eat an elephant, which we don't encourage doing because elephants are majestic beasts and wonderful. But if you were to eat an elephant or something of that size, you wouldn't try to eat the whole thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So do you see anything more prevalent now because of the times we're living in or the you're smiling. You're smiling knowingly. I'm smiling. Yes. Because I mean, I felt like, especially when the pandemic first started, I was like, well, I got a lot of content to deal with managing anxiety. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I feel like with the pandemic and if we've learned nothing, it's, you know, we need to be adaptable. We need to be more forgiving towards ourselves. We need to be more compassionate to ourselves. And so, yeah, I feel like this is a time where a lot of the things that I talk about, a lot of the self-compassion, a lot of the mindfulness, a lot of the tools for actually looking at where you may be feeling anxious and then, you know, having tools to speak to that are really, really effective, really helpful. Could you share an example of one of those for anxiety? One of my first ones that I went to was actually self-compassion, which I honestly feel like can be very, very almost the same thing. Actually, let's do this. One of my favorite exercises is this one where what you do is you take both hands and you put them up in front of your face like this. And then I want you to put all of your focus and your attention on one hand. So just look at it, look at all of the details that you can possibly get in about your hand, the palm of your hand, the lines on the palm of your hand, maybe the veins underneath the skin, the shape of your fingers, the texture of your skin, just all kinds of details. And then imagine that this hand is holding all of the thoughts, the anxious thoughts that you're thinking that you wish you didn't have to think or that you didn't want to be thinking. So it could be, I'll never be able to figure out how to organize this person's place or are my productivity tips as effective as I want them to be? Am I good enough? Can I do this? Can I make my business work during this pandemic? All kinds of things. And then what I want you to do is to slowly shift your attention from your first hand to your second hand. And do the same thing. Look at all of the details of that hand. Really just get fascinated by your second hand. Notice things. Try to notice what's interesting and unexpected about it. The second hand. You're not even, the first hand doesn't even matter. 
Now imagine that this hand is holding all of the ideas and all the thoughts that you would rather be thinking. Like, I'm gonna be able to do this. One of my pieces of genius is organizing things and making people more productive, whatever it is that you would rather be thinking that you think is helpful. Now, now that you're looking at this hand so intently, is your first hand still there? Do you care about the first <laughs> hand now that you're so focused on your second hand? Huh, it shrunk. It was like, it shrunk right away, right? And Not it's... like it shrunk. So many people say a lot of different things like my second hand was heavier, it felt brighter, it felt like it was tingly, like all of these things. And so I love this exercise because I feel like it's a great exercise to show yourself and to actually embody the power of mindfulness and using your attention and focus to put it in a different place to manage your anxiety and to manage your thinking. I love it. It struck me this week, actually, you know, reading a little bit more about negativity bias and the fact that we pay attention to those firsthand messages potentially more and even things that come in our inbox. Isn't it useful if we recognize when we get a good message and we have a practice of perhaps rereading those messages and infusing ourselves, not only with our own voice, but also that reinforcement from outside that says, hey, you did an amazing job and we appreciate you. And to maybe when you get a thank you card, maybe you post it up. Maybe you start your day by reading some external voices that help your internal voice remember <laughs> all of that good stuff. I actually have a, an exercise, AKA a creative dose in the book called Acutos File. And so back in the days of marketing, marketers would take pieces of copy that were really great pieces of copy and they put them into their swipe file. And so this is to make a swipe file of positive things that people have said to you so that whenever you're feeling down, whenever you feel like your thoughts are going towards the negative, you can pull up your swipe file of all the great things that people have ever said to you, comments on Facebook or LinkedIn or on Twitter or reviews or emails that people have sent you or thank you cards or whatever. Do you have a repository of all of those? And so that you can go through and you can just look at them and you can say, okay, right, right, right. I remember. This is like validation on demand. <laughs> validation on demand. Exactly. Love that. That there is a power tool. I have something I, I talk about called productivity table stakes. And I look at mindset as being the number one and banishing your inner critic is all about protecting your mindset and nurturing this so that it's there to support you in whatever you want to do in your business and personally as well. So you're right. This book is the, it's the handbook for things you can do practically to tame those voices, to turn them around and have them be advocates for you, cheerleaders, if you will. And it's not fake. This is based on mining your own self and mining your experience and drawing from that. So it's uh, really a power tool. And it's also based on science. That was one of the things that I really, really, again, one of the things that I thought as a real thought was as a black woman, if this is considered like a woo-woo, airy-fairy, unsubstantiated thing, people are going to discount it. Not to mention the fact that a lot of my clients are in the tech industry. 
I used to work a lot with developers and software engineers. I was like, I know my people. I know that if they're going to be trying to hear about creativity, they need it to be tied to something that speaks to them. And analytical stuff and science and neuroscience speaks to this audience. It also speaks to me. And so I have always made the connection between creativity and the neuroscience of creativity. And this is like the neuroscience of silencing your inner critic that I actually used a lot of the sources that I use stated scientific studies that prove that these tools are effective, right? So the exercises, none of the exercises are just like, do this thing and it'll totally make you feel better. Like do some affirmation. <laughs> it will, but here's why. Yeah. And here's why I know that you can trust it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. After my own heart, my, my degree was biology. And so it never made sense for a long time because I was in telecommunications and in the corporate world. And now it does. So yeah, it's science-backed strategies. That's what I'm all about. So that's why, yeah, reading through it, it was really hard not to go to every footnote or every, every number. And I'm like, oh, what was that from? What was that from? I'm like, no, just read because it's gems and then go explore the bibliography later because, oh, it's a wealth of great recommendations for further reading. If you want to go deeper on understanding the why of any of these, it's, it's psychology and science all together. Yeah. It's a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful blend. So I'm going to, this is the final question I came up with, and this is making a mad assumption. So I believe I'm teaching some of the things that I've needed to learn along the way. And so as a productivity person, I'm honing what I need to do to be um, more productive. And I'm wondering if for you, even though you've written this book on Banish Your Inner Critic, does your inner critic still poke its head up and say, Denise, does it talk to you in a way that you, you would like to, to reframe her? Yeah, I mean, it drives my behavior and, and all this stuff. And one of the things that I do say in the book is, it's not like you're going to do the stuff in this book and then, oh, I don't have any inner critic anymore. I mean, it's been there for a long time. It's a part of your psyche. The goal is not to make it so that your inner critic is completely gone because that is an unreasonable, untenable goal. And my mind is to make it so that it's not as loud. Well, and maybe not as present in as many situations. Exactly. And that you are familiar enough with it so that instead of being blindsided by it, like I was when I was starting to write my first book and I cried for two days, that I could go, oh, there you are. That's what you're doing. Isn't that cute? Yeah, girl, I'm going to go write this book. I'm going to go start this company. So party on your own for a while. <laughs> yeah. I know you're going to pop up and you're going to try to throw a wrench in the works and be a Debbie Downer and everything. And like, I'm ready for you. And so it's that kind of approach rather than being like, oh my God, I just I couldn't do anything and I don't know why and what's wrong with me. And like, oh, it's my inner critic. Hi, inner critic. Woo. You know, and then you like, you go on. And so I feel like that's really the goal. And of course we teach what we need to learn. And absolutely when I wrote this, not only did I need to really, or, you know, when I started teaching this and I started talking about it so much, it was because it had been such a prominent part of my own life and my own career, my own professional arc, everything. And the other thing that I find interesting about it, especially now that it's been 10 years since the kind of like 
initiating experience, kind of formative experience that got me through this whole thing. Now that it's been 10 years, I'm starting to look back at that formative experience and I'm starting to see other elements in it where it's like before it was so much about creativity for me, which is what put me on the path of deciding that I was going to call myself a creativity evangelist and whatnot to teach the gospel and spread the good word of creativity. But it was because that was what I needed at the time. I didn't have an identity or I was struggling to see myself as a creative person. Well, in the last 10 years, I've done tons of things that I'd like prove over and over. Like I'm okay. Like I design my own earrings and rings and I fabricate them out of silver. Like I write books. I design things. Like if I still am wondering whether I'm creative, like I haven't been paying attention. So that's not the question anymore. And now I'm starting to look back at that formative experience and to see the other elements of it and other aspects of it, which is one of the reasons why I'm starting to think about this confidence and your and confidence and how being confident in what you do kind of creates this situation where you can not just amplify what you're doing, but that you can have more impact in other people's lives. Hundred percent. Well, what strikes me is that that two days crying, which felt very like a very dire situation at the time, turned out to be the nugget, the sand that formed this pearl, if you will. So I'm thinking, if we can look at our own lives and struggles now, there may be some sand, grains of sand that we're dealing with that might be sparks of something. So I love the idea of digging deep into and trying to understand where some of our blocks might be. And you've just given us a real understanding of your journey and how valuable that has been. You've written this fabulous book, Banish Your Inner Critic. I want to thank you so much, Denise, for joining me today and sharing these really practical things we can do to turn that inner critic from foe to friend. I want you to invite you to uh, find more creative doses within the pages of the book. And to find out more about Denise, you can find her at denisejacobs.com. That is a wrap for this episode of Stand Out, the podcast to help people in the organizing and productivity industry better your business. Tune into more episodes at napopodcast.com. And until the next one, stay safe, be kind to yourself, and enjoy the journey. Thanks so much, Denise, for joining us today. And everyone, be well. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of Stand Out, brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit napo.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters, and more.